1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to talk about Angola, and it's a topic that we haven't discussed in quite some time, but in many ways, Angola is one of the most interesting countries in Africa to look at in terms of China-Africa relations, in part because China has more invested in Angola than almost any other country on the continent, and it's almost all concentrated in the oil sector. Now, consider this. Angola has borrowed some $25 billion from the Chinese. At $25 billion, and a lot of those loans are backed through natural resources. Just this year alone, Angola is negotiating with the Chinese government now to borrow an additional $4.4 billion, again, backed in oil. Now, this has created something of an economic crisis in Angola, in part because they are cash poor. And this is one of those ironies. This is the ultimate oil curse, where you are blessed with vast amounts of oil. But when you sell it to people like the Chinese, who then use infrastructure and physical things to pay it back, but not cash, well, there you have the origins of a cash crisis. And that's what leads Angola to be one of the poorest countries in Africa with the highest Gini coefficients, the gap between the rich and poor is the largest of almost anywhere in the world there. So China, in so many ways, is such an interesting case study in Angola to look at. And Cobus, you know, what's interesting is that the situation hasn't changed in many years, despite the warnings of this debt crisis and the fact that a lot of people don't think that the way the Chinese are managing the relationship in Angola is actually sustainable over the long term.
2: Yes, one of the reasons why it hasn't changed for so long was that Angola had one of the longest-serving presidents on the continent. So um, José Eduardo dos Santos had been in power for decades, um, had weathered all kinds of political storms, and in the process, he centralised a lot of power around himself, particularly in his family. So he was essentially untouchable, and his family was very, very, very powerful. And, you know, it ended up being the doing business with Angola... You know, and this included not only China, but also a lot of, like all of the world's biggest oil companies. When they do business with Angola, they ended up having to do business with the Dos Santos family. And that caused that made the situation
1: very stable,
2: stable in the bad way, you know, kind of, you know, unchangeable and
1: stagnant. Well, since last September, there's been a change in leadership and it's only happened three times in Angola's post-colonial history. Joao Lorenzo is now the third president of Angola. He assumed power last September in 2017. And in many ways, he is both the hope and also the concern for the future of Angola, in part because of this relationship with China. Copas, tell us a little bit more about Joao Lorenzo.
2: Well, you know, I didn't know very much about him. And our guests today told me a lot more He is part of a a general, very interesting trend in Southern Africa where long-term leaders and sometimes very controversial leaders are replaced by new leaders. So he replaced Dos Santos, Mugabe Fell was replaced by Mnangagwa. you know, and so on and so on. It happened in several Southern African countries last year. But the parties that they represent don't change. So it's frequently it's they, these leaders are entrenched and then they're replaced by challenges within their own parties coming up through the same ranks and frequently, as in the case of Lorenzo, someone who had been, you know, part of that party for, for decades and part of the anti-liberation struggle that the party fought also for decades. So it's a very interesting situation where the king of the party is essentially replaced by someone who was widely seen as basically a functionary of the party. In order to find out a little bit more about Lorenzo and to get clues about how his reign will change Angola's relationship with China, I spoke with Ana Alves. She used to be at the South African Institute of International Affairs. She's an expert on the relationship between China and Portuguese-speaking countries, particularly Angola. And she's now at Nanyang University in Singapore. Ana, I wonder if we could start off just at a very, very kind of basic level, By telling us who is João Lourenço and and how did he manage to get the job of leading Angola?
3: Okay, João Lourenço, he actually started in MPLA long ago, still in the 70s. He was a a teenager. He he joined the uh, forces against the colonial power, the Portuguese. And he, he, like other Officials in MPLA, he also studied in the Soviet Union. He studied history there, was there for a few years. And um, he he came back throughout the the 80s. um, And there was a civil war already uh, ravaging the country. He was uh, placed by the MPLA in different provinces. So he basically had a very normal path within the party. It doesn't stand out from many other officials inside MPLA. Then in the 1990s, he was placed in uh, Luanda around the time that the elections were held in in 1992, and he stayed there after that. He stayed in Luanda, closer to the centre of MPLA. Uh, Eventually, he became the secretary of MPLA, I think, in 1998, and he was a quite high-level figure in the party uh, back then. And when the, the civil war ended in 2002... Dushantos was already thinking of, or at least uh, telling publicly that he he wanted to retire. So, Lorenzo, João Lorenzo, then stepped forward and said, if he retires, uh, I will take over. I will uh, take this uh, voluntary step to take over MPLA. But it was a bad move because uh, apparently Dushantos was not ready to leave. (laughs) And obviously, he was, shall we say, punished (laughs) after that. And he was sidelined, and for uh, over a decade, uh, he was uh, actually forgotten, almost forgotten, inside the MPLA. And then was what in Portuguese we call it, Traversia do Deserto. He was made to cross the desert for a number of years, and he kept a low profile. He didn't raise any problems during that. So he was eventually brought back into the party in uh, 2014, I think 2014, he was rehabilitated, sort of rehabilitated, and, and he became the minister of defense in 2014. 2014 is a very important year in what happened over the recent years for the, the change in leadership in Angola, because 2014 is when we saw the the dip in oil uh, prices, and that set up in motion a dynamics that led to the change in leadership that happened last year. Because as the situation deteriorated economically because of the the fall in oil prices, and as as you know, Angolan oil economy is uh, highly dependent on on oil. Just uh, to give you an idea, uh, nearly half of the GDP comes from from oil. 75% of state revenue comes from oil. And around 95% of Angola's exports our oil. So obviously when the prices came down in 2014 that affected very very negatively the the economy in Angola and as economic situation deteriorated so did the image of MPLA as people start uh, struggling even more particularly The poorest, even the emerging middle class start having problems. And there was lots of not only the society, the Angolan citizens, but also a lot of investors pulled out of Angola since 2014 because of the lack of currency in Angola. Because the dip in oil prices and the the government seen their revenue decline severely after that. So a lot of investors pulling out and also a lot more complaints coming up about Dos Santos family role in Angolan businesses about the monopolies that were in the hands of Angola of Dos Santos families and his friends. So social discontent was growing in Angolan. MPLA obviously was aware of that was happen- of what was happening. At the same time, Dos Santos was perceived to be getting sicker and sicker as his visits to Spain for medical treatment became more frequent. So what happened was that inside the MPLA, they start realizing we need to change the leadership, right? We need to make the transition now if MPLA is to remain in charge of the country. So that was the situation that set in motion the leadership that led to Lorenzo becoming the new president of Angola. So in December, but this was already being discussed within the party, but not much came outside. By December 2016, they had uh, elections in uh, MPLA for the new uh, uh, secretary general. So Dos Santos was reconducted as president of MPLA in December, but João Lourenço was elected vice president. Right. And Dushantos had already earlier 2016, around May, I think he had announced that he was not going to run for the elections in 2017. So everyone was saying, well, he's just he said that so many times before, it's probably not going to happen. But it actually happened this time because of the economic crisis and because of deteriorating uh, support rates for MPLA. So Dushantos retained uh, the post-Secretary as General of MPLA, but the party imposed on them that he had to leave that he, he had to open up for someone else to step in and take over MPLA. And jean Lourenço was that person because unlike most of high figures in MPLA, he had a clean sheet. He was not uh, seen as corrupt. And uh, so everyone, it was a consensus agreement. Everyone agreed, uh, uh, Lorenzo is going to um, be the one running for the elections in 2017. Dushantus didn't raise any objections. On the one hand, he had some assurance that uh, Lorenzo wasn't going to pose major challenges for uh, for him, since he had not raised many problems for Dushantus. While when he was sidelined for those uh, ten years, he had been working with Dushantus in 2014 as Minister of Defense. So Dushantus at that stage actually thought he could control him. He could still be managing business behind the scenes as Secretary General of MPLA. Uh, when the campaign started, João Lourenço, from the very start, the flagship of his campaign was anti-corruption because he knew that was the main concern of Angolan society. Yes. The corruption, particularly from the family because his offspring basically controlled the biggest businesses in the country and the public uh, enterprises. So this is the context in which Lorenzo uh, came into power.
2: And so once he came to power, was that idea of Dos Santos that he would be able to control him, was that born out after the election?
3: There was a lot of discussions about that right after the elections in August 2017, whether he would be just a puppet or if uh, he would, in fact, uh, stand up to the promises that he made during uh, the campaign. But uh, we didn't have to wait much to see wha- uh, what stance he was taking because too much into his mandate, he started firing all the people that Tush Santosh had nominated just before he left few months before he left, he had placed his close allies in key posts, in the ministries, in the state-owned enterprises, in the police, uh, in uh, the judicial system, in the National Bank of Angola, etc. So, as he took over, jean Laurence started dismantling Dos Santos' patrimonial network. But still at that initial stage, everyone was like, well, he's dismantling that, but he's not going to be able to touch Dos Santos' offspring. But the fact is that in November, he actually fired Isabel dos Santos from Sonangol. Isabel dos Santos uh, is the eldest daughter of uh, José Eduardo dos Santos, and he had nominated her as CEO of the national oil company uh, Sonangol in June 2016. So that was one of the main uh, turning points when everyone started realizing it's actually serious about dismantling uh, the network. And so he fired Isabel Dushantso. He also finished the contracts that the national TV had uh, with uh, broadcasting companies that were controlled by other uh, offspring, other Dushantso's offspring. And beginning this year, he actually fired the last one, the last son of Dushantso, who was still in a position of power. Uh, This is Zen, who was uh, head of the National Wealth Fund. So he was also fired. And they were not only fired, as he has um, ordered uh, auditings to all the companies that they they were running. And probably there will be some prosecutions coming out of that if there is embezzlement, um, if embezzlement can be proven. At least um, there are hopes that there will be some punishment coming out of those auditing processes.
0: Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars.
3: So uh, Sonangol, the golden egg chicken of the Angolan economy, (laughs) and um, it's a critical company in in terms of the the economy. And let's not forget that Angola is the third largest economy in Sub-Saharan Africa, and most of of that comes from the oil industry. So Sonangol plays a vital role in Angola's economy. Also because it's at the same time that it's a national oil company, it's also the regulator of um, the oil industry in, in Angola, so it was important for Lourenço to control Sonangol. That's why he fired uh, Isabel dos Santos. In terms of the importance of Sonangol in the relationship with China, it's obviously at the center. And there's two two main areas that are the most important in China Angola relationship, and both of them related to the oil industry. So the first one is oil trade. China is the main importer of Angola's oil. I think the last figures I had from 2016 was around just over 60% of Angolan oil was going to China. And Angola has been consistently over the past 10 years in the top three oil suppliers to China. And uh, so it's a very interdependent relationship that started growing from 2007 when China became the first buyer of Angolan oil, taking over the United States of America. And on the other hand, that same oil is funding the Chinese intervention in construction sector in Angola. And uh, Angola, most of the reconstruction, the infrastructure construction that was done after the end of the civil war in 2002 has been carried out uh, by Chinese companies with Chinese funding. It's estimated that since 2002, around 20 or 21 billion dollars have been extended in loans from China to Angolan government. Some of them to the government, part of it, the more recent ones, to Son Angol itself, to fund the Son Angol oil exploration. So that's why I say oil is at the center of the relationship at least up until this point up until the end of the uh, duhsantos rule
2: so how did the fall in the oil price affect this relationship
3: it uh, in the beginning not much because it actually in the beginning contributed to deepen the relationship because as the prices came down it became cheaper for china to import oil and to fund um, and f- f- uh, to fund the loans but as a year's progress in that downward cycle, it became more complicated for Angola to pay out the loans. And the loans were to be uh, repaid uh, through oil exports, using oil exports as collateral to guarantee the repayment uh, of the loans. And since 2006, uh, that has actually contributed to deteriorating of the relationship between uh, China and Angola because Uh, Son Angol stopped sending the shipments at the end of 2016, stopped uh, sending the shipments of oil to China to repay the loans. And that was because it was in downward cycle. It was more profitable for Angola to, to sell the oil to the West that were paying higher prices. So they deviate the oil that should be going to China to pay the loans. They start sending it to Europe. And that became a problem in the relationship to the point that china froze the credit line that they had opened for Sonangol in 2012 and that was i think around six or eight billion dollars so they closed they stopped sending money and they uh, refused to give any new loans after that and also that was one of the parts one of the issues why the relationship started deteriorating towards the end of dusanto's rule the other one was There was more and more problems related to Chinese investment because of the also the governance problem in Angola because of the corruption. For instance, the construction companies, the Chinese construction companies were increasingly complaining about being forced to pay bribes for the construction contracts, to get construction contracts. And also there was a lot of pressure put on them to finish the the construction projects before the elections, before uh, August 2017. So that also contributed towards uh, the further deterioration in, in the relationship. So towards the end of Duchamp's rule, there was a number of problems in the relationship. And not only those problems, but also Angola lost a lot of leverage that it had in the relationship up until uh, 2014. So once the prices went down, it leveraged to negotiate with with China uh, also uh, fell. And so the new situation now with Lorenzo coming into the the scene is how they're going to strengthen the relationship with China. How they're going to fix the existing problems still in the context of the low prices.
2: And how do you foresee that going? I mean, is there a way to broaden the relationship?
3: There seems to be a positive thinking around that uh, on both ends. Foreign Minister Wang Yi visited Angola in uh, January and uh, both of them were issuing declarations that the partnership is very important for both sides and they should work on a new, um, on the upgrade of the relationship. And the upgrade of the relationships, it seems from uh, what I was able to read at that time, was working in diversifying uh, cooperation and investment from China into Angola to help Angola uh, diversify its economy away from the oil industry and also uh, industrialize to increase its uh, production capacity. So that seems to be what will define, um, at least in theory, what will be the defining traits of the relationship under uh, Jean Lawrence try to move away from the oil. Not move away from oil, but integrate other sectors of the economy into the, the economic partnership. And they mentioned um, agriculture, animal husbandry, tourism, uh, etc.
2: Um, one of the comparisons that I've seen in, in discussions of Angola's relationship with China is um, the most pessimistic view of how that relationship could turn out has been comparisons with Venezuela. You know, that also where, you know, economic crisis was triggered by a fall in the oil price in a very oil-dependent economy that is also heavily indebted to China. Does that comparison make sense to your mind?
3: In some ways, yes, but we have a different context uh, in Angola. Uh, There has been a a regime change uh, in Angola, even though it's still the same MPLA, but it's definitely uh, uh, taking a different approach and making sure that... There is a a defining or a a red line between what was being done under Dushantos and how Lorenzo wants his mandate to be seen. And number one, we see a very strong anti-corruption campaign in Angola that is not happening in, in Venezuela. So in Angola, I think the difference at this stage is that at least in appearances, it seems that they're moving in the right direction, trying to create the conditions internally uh, to attract investment, not only from China, but from all other parts of the world. So there are some determinants that are very similar because Venezuela, also because of the oil prices uh, crash, also lost a lot of leverage in the negotiations with China. That is the case uh, uh, with Angola. But still, uh, Lorenzo sees China as a critical partner. But also from what I could understand, is trying to diversify foreign relations, so not to be as dependent as, from China as they are um, in the present situation. How do
2: you see the interplay between China and Western powers in Angola? Um, you know, obviously, all of the main um, Western oil companies are very big stakeholders in the, in the Angolan oil scene. Um, is there space for cooperation there?
3: I think in in theory, yes, definitely. In the oil sector, I think for the foreseeable future, we will still see the the Western companies dominate uh, the production side, at least. Chinese companies, I don't think they have the skills and the knowledge to produce in such a mass scale as the, the Western companies are doing, and they do lack the same knowledge in terms of the conditions of the oil and how to best extract the oil in Angola. But obviously there are room there is room for partnerships even there because uh, chinese may like the skills and the experience and the technology but they do have the money and that seems to be something that is getting um, scarcer and scarcer in in the west so there might be entryway for china to be become more dominant in the um, the oil industry in angola on the production side because from now they only dominate from the demand side let's say they buy most of the oil in angola but there are definitely scope for cooperation in other sectors of the economy, in um, in agriculture, in services. But in practice, I think it's going to be uh, very difficult because it's complete different uh, operational uh, metrics, the Chinese one and the one from Western companies. In addition to that, all the obstacles in terms of uh, business culture and uh, language, uh, etc.
2: Yeah, 2017 was amazing. Kind of change over time throughout Southern Africa, with a lot of a lot of very established leaders suddenly being replaced. You know, frequently their parties were not replaced, but the at least you know very kind of entrenched, long term leaders ended up unexpectedly being replaced by other people within their own parties. Do you see this kind of like subcontinent wide? Change. How do you see it affecting the relationship of China with Southern Africa as a whole?
3: I don't see the relationship changing in in a significant way. I think the main change here is that China is now in a situation where it has more leverage over uh, this new faces that have come into power, particularly because of the low uh, commodity prices um, cycle. And that, I think, is the major difference in this new context. The faces have changed, but the dependency is still there, and China remains as critical as it was before for for all these countries, um, for Zimbabwe, um, for South Africa as well. Um, But China, I think, at this particular stage, has much more uh, leverage. Even though Angola, for instance, still retains... Some degree of leverage in the relationship because the prices might be low, but still, Angola is one of the top three exporters of oil to China. So they re- do retain some measurement of uh, leverage uh, when it comes to negotiating with China.
2: Anna Always is an assistant professor at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. It was fascinating to speak with you.
3: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. All the best.
1: Cobus, as I was listening to the discussion that you had with Anna, it brought to mind the situation here in China in some ways where there is a new political reality that Xi Jinping now does not have any term limits on his presidency. So he can be in office for as long as he chooses. Obviously, in Angola, that was a case under Dos Santos. We don't know what Lorenzo is going to do. But there is this indication That democracy is not on the front burner in much of Africa, and there's not been much of a democratic tradition in Angola. So, do you see any kind of linkage between what's happening in China with the new political reality here and the fact that Angola is so integrated with the Chinese economy that they're certainly not going to put any pressure on Lorenzo to change governments and to step down and to foster democracy? Did you make that linkage in any way as well when you're listening to Anna?
2: I didn't really. Some people have been pointing out the parallels between what's called third-termism in Africa. Joseph Kabila in DRC is at the moment the most kind of egregious example of a president who is in power and then decides he would like to stay in power beyond his term limit and then changes the constitution to do so. I don't think that that comparison really makes much sense, simply because China is in such a different position in the world. And the Chinese political system is so unique. So, you know, in terms of the second part of your question, you know, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't foresee any kind of pressure on Lorenzo or, or really any African government from China to, you know, kind of to step down or to, to have a more democratic system. That's just not yeah. what China is interested in. No. But at the same time, you know, the relationship between China and Angola it depends on stability. And the fact that Angola is so deep in debt to China, it endangers that stability. So, you know, so, so both of them are in this kind of difficult knife-edge situation where, you know, Angola remains China's one of China's biggest sources of oil. So, you know, kind of, the, so China has real stakes there. And maintaining the stability depends to a certain extent on, you know, not ignoring the pressures of, that face the Angolan population, including massive unemployment. So it's a very difficult situation. I think it's a difficult one for Angola, certainly, but it's a difficult one for
1: China as well. I think Angola is going to be the country to watch if the debt crisis that everybody's been warning about becomes a reality. And in so many ways, what's happening in Angola mirrors what happened in Venezuela. The profile of the two countries is very, very similar. Oil-exporting countries under long-term dictatorships, very distorted economies, and China loaned Venezuela enormous amounts of money. And it really was egg on the face of the Chinese when they're having to default on that debt. Now, interestingly enough, there were reports last week that came out that China is going to forgive the debt of Zimbabwe. Now, Zimbabwe's debt relative to Angola's is quite small in the single-digit billions. We're now talking upwards of $30 billion in Angola. If Angola is unable to continue, you know, economic is a sustenance, uh, and it defaults on that debt, that could create political problems at home for Xi Jinping for having to defend the fact that the Chinese extended themselves so far. $30 billion, even for the Chinese, is a lot of money. So in some ways, I think this is going to be very, very interesting to see, do they continue to extend loans to Angola? And should Angola continue to accept those loans and go for that money, in part because of the risks that are entailed?
2: I raised the Venezuela um, comparison with Ana, and she made the point that she feels that Angola, to a certain extent, is in a better position than Venezuela because Lorenzo has been very assertive in, in reforming parts of the system. So, you know, firing Isabel dos Santos, um, Edo, Jose Eduardo dos Santos' daughter, from the presidency of the state oil company, that was a big step. And, you know, he has worked quite quickly to try and kind of root out some of of these kind of entrenched interests, I mean, he might well just replace them with other interests, who knows? The other question, I think, becomes what does political problems mean for Xi Jinping now that the term limits have been suspended? You know, that that is a different issue, like to, to which extent is popular anger in China about a big, you know, kind of forgiving a, a big loan in a, you know another part of the world? To which extent is that exerting any pressure on Xi now that, you know, he's in this particular position? I mean, that is an, another very difficult question to answer. Uh,
1: Liz, it is. But at the end of the day, politics are still politics. And even for someone in Xi's position, he's got factions that he has to deal with. $30 billion is a lot of money. And that those different various competing factions could crimp other parts of his agenda that he wants to pursue if they are given some strength through the collapse, say, for example, of the Angolan economy and that debt. So politics is still a reality here, even though he is, you know, effectively an emperor for life, if he wants to be and if he chooses to be. You know, just because he's in that situation doesn't mean he's immune from politics, so... Well, that's what we think. We would love to hear what you think on this. We've got a lively conversation going on right across the internet on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. YouTube, in, interestingly enough, is really a lot of the most, you know, some of the nastiest <laughs> comments come on YouTube. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, we uh, they are some of the more lively ones. And we do appreciate all of our new listeners on our YouTube channel. You can find us at youtube.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, go ahead and subscribe. We'd love to have you join our community and comment and share. Tell us a little bit more about what you think of the show and Kobus and I, our different takes on Don stories. And also, if you are interested in following China Africa news, we've got this fantastic newsletter that we edit and curate the top five or six stories of the week. And you get it Monday mornings. Uh, and we're actually launching a brand new newsletter in the next week or two that's going to be even more dynamic and uh, better kind of laid out. And so we have some new features coming to you on that newsletter. So go ahead and you can find our newsletter at our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And you'll see there's a button at the top to subscribe. And we'd love to have you part of that community as well. So for Copa's Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.comslash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Orlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.